But I want to think about the Lord Jesus Christ for a few moments. I was talking earlier in the week to Kerry and Wynne about um, a godly old pastor I heard in Clandudno in North Wales. I'm sure I pronounced that wrongly, but um, his name was Horace Jones. And the very last time I ever heard him preach, he took, he said, I want to preach this morning on the moral perfection of the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the congregation sat, and I think we were just in, in awe, not so much about the sermon, but about the person of the Lord Jesus. And it does us good once in a while just to stop and consider again Christ. Why are we here this morning? Because of the Lord Jesus. Why are we Christians? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. This one man who towers above the rest of humanity, and who somehow, despite all the efforts of humanism and atheism and the secular agenda of this current generation, somehow people cannot shake him off, can they? Even if it's just as, as a blasphemy. It seems as though his name is on the minds and the lips of, of men and women. And of course, people have different views about him. <coughs> Talk to a Muslim, they want to say that they esteem Jesus, and yet they also want to put him down. And, and many of the things that he says about himself and others have said about him, no, 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 we don't accept that. Just a prophet. Of course, the atheist would, would concede that he was a great moral leader. And um, yes, but to treat him as God or as the saviour, no, they, they can't go along with that. The Jew, again, in some ways, proud of the fact that Jesus was born as a Jew, in fact, Jesus said salvation is of the Jews, but the Messiah, the one that they were anticipating, the Redeemer, no, they can't accept that. For the BBC and the comedians, yes, just a butt of their jokes and their blasphemy, but it seems as though everybody has a view about the Lord Jesus. In fact, we read earlier, didn't we, of the Lord Jesus after he's lived and died, been buried and risen, he's, he's making several appearances and he appears to these two people walking on the road to Emmaus. And interestingly, even they, not realising this was Jesus himself, even they begin to give their view of Christ. I think we're familiar with the sight of Jehovah's Witnesses on, on the streets with their little stands I always think they look miserable or they're chatting with each other. They certainly don't want to talk to us. But one of the strange beliefs in, um, in the Je Jehovah's Witness religion is they do not believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. It, it, it's weird because you read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you read the, the New Testament, it's absolutely abundant. Christ died, was buried, and the, 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 the body that went into the tomb is the body that came out of the tomb. One of the, one of the evidences, quote-unquote, that they use, they, they love to say, ah, oh, well, those two on the road to Emmaus didn't recognise him. And yet, it's clear why they didn't. We, we read it, read it in the passage. Their eyes were held that they might not behold him until the right moment. Otherwise, uh, we would never have had this, this, this discourse that we have recorded here. But, but they have their view. Oh, he was a prophet, mighty in deeds before God and men. We were the ones who thought he was going to, I don't know, be the redeemer, but he was crucified and buried. And now people are saying strange things have happened. And then eventually, eventually, Jesus comes in and he describes himself. And I want us in these few minutes together to see what Jesus says about himself. 
Luke chapter 24, verses 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He says three things about himself. This is Jesus introducing himself to you and me. First of all, he describes himself as the prefigured Christ. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. I, I said yesterday, one of the unique features of the Lord Jesus is that his biography was written before he was born. I love biography. I enjoy reading the lives of all sorts of characters and, 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 and yeah, a little bit of detail sometimes at the end about their death and their passing and that's the end of it. But all the biographies were written after the birth, usually after the life of the individual. But Jesus was different. Long before he entered into the arena of humanity, prophets began to speak about him. And, and you can read what they were saying. As you go through the Old Testament, it seems as though it becomes clearer and clearer as to who this coming Messiah, this Christ, is going to be. And, and, and things are made so clear that he becomes unmissable. In fact, right at the very beginning of time, the first man, the first woman, sin against God, and immediately, hot on the heel of their rebellion, God comes and he makes his first promise that there's somebody coming who's going to bruise the head of the serpent, the Satan, who's going to deal a death blow, as it were, to the one who's caused so much havoc to the world. It's the first indication. God has a plan and he begins to show it to us. As you read on, it becomes clearer and more distinct. I often think it's, it's as if this room was in darkness and there's a, perhaps a white floor and, and we put up something like this, high up, there's a light there, there's eye, and there's a vague shadow cast onto the floor. And then as we, as we bring the hand nearer and nearer and nearer to the floor, the shadow becomes clearer and more distinct. And it's like that as you're going through the Old Testament, God is giving us more and more information through the prophets, telling us about who this coming Messiah is. We're told where he'd be born, just, just in a little town, Bethlehem. Who's heard of Bethlehem, a few miles south of the capital city? But he'll be born there, and he'll be born of a virgin. And then we're given more information about his, his life, and his teaching, and the impact that he'd make, and the miracles that he'd perform. And then in great detail, we're told about his death. And his death becomes incredibly significant even before he's born. Crucifixion was devised by the Phoenicians about 300 years before Jesus was born. But 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah. And a thousand years before Jesus was born, David. Described the, in detail how he would suffer and die. How every bone of his body would be pulled apart, but not a bone of his body broken. How he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver and denied. How he'd die between thieves. How, how, how they'd pierce his side. Some of the words that the people round about would be, would be saying are, are, are written long before they were ever born. How they'd gamble for his garments. And how he'd carry our sin in his own body on the tree. 
all written long before Jesus came into the world, how he would be buried, how he would rise, uh, and then the impact that he would have on forthcoming generations, and eventually, of course, even description about his second coming. I've often, when I've been talking with atheists, I've said, how do you explain all these fulfilled prophecies? How do you explain that somebody could see in a moment of time what would happen in the future and write it down in intricate detail and get it so absolutely right if there isn't a God who's bigger than and beyond time? God did not want us to miss the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was this moment when God himself came into our world and it's stunning when you think all the billions of galaxies, all the billions of stars in the billions of galaxies. And yet God should so love individuals. He has this great plan that he wants everybody to know about, that he would come into the world with the express mission of eventually doing something to deal with our sin and our rebellion. God became a man and made his dwelling among us. And do you know the prophecies, they're, they're, they're very clear, very distinct, but they're also sort of, Indications. I'll give you an, an unusual one because the Bible teaches that Jesus is the God-man. Deity and humanity in one being in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've just finished reading through the book of Exodus and um, the first part is all very dramatic and then there are detailed descriptions about how the people of God who are travelling in the wilderness are to worship and there's to be a, a, a tabernacle, a tent, a, a moving place of worship and God gives detailed instructions as to how it's to be constructed. 26 times I counted, I may have missed some, but 26 times God talks about the colours of the tabernacle. Blue, purple, and red. Blue, purple, red. And every time it's that order. It's never red, purple, and blue. It's always blue, purple, red. 26 times. Why? Well, blue is a heavenly colour. And, and red is an earthly colour. And you combine the two together and you have purple. And it's almost as if God is saying, I want you to notice this. There's going to be a, a combination of heaven and earth and in the Lord Jesus Christ we have the God-man you can examine the Lord Jesus Christ so carefully and say yeah everything about him is absolutely human he knew what it was to be hungry and to be thirsty and to be tired and to be tempted he was a real man and yet he spoke as only God could speak he lived as only God could live he did what only God could do he is the God-man and he's walking on the face of our earth and God said, I, I want you to know about him. He's the prefigured Christ. And he turned to these two walking on the road to Emmaus and said, oh, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Then he says something else about himself. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? He is the disfigured Christ. Jesus came into our world with the purpose of dealing with our sin. And to do that, he had to die. I don't know, I don't know about myself sometimes. I sort of become familiar with the rottenness and the wrongness that there is in the world around us. And you sort of look and you think, yeah, it's almost to be expected. And we almost feel nowadays nothing's going to shock us. Sin has always shocked a holy God. He hates sin. 
And wherever there is sin, it always brings death. But very interestingly, throughout the Bible, that death is either of the sinner or the substitute. So right at the beginning of time, the first man, the first woman, they sin against God. And immediately there's a penalty. But there's also a substitute. An animal dies, its skin is taken and it covers them. And then again, you continue to read. This still is long before Jesus was born. And God gives detailed instructions, uh, descriptions about sacrifices. And, and we read them with our sort of 21st century mind. And we think, oh, it's, it's a little tedious. It's, it's a little boring. But, but God wants to make it abundantly clear. Sin is serious. And there has to be a way whereby sin can be dealt with. And so uh, a Jewish person feeling that they'd done wrong against God would would look into the scriptures, would hear the priests explaining, and they would take sacrifices. Maybe an innocent animal, say a lamb. Young, male, perfectly pure, nothing unhealthy about it, and it would be taken to a Jewish priest and it would be laid on a Jewish altar and the priest would lay his hand on the head of the lamb and then the sinful person would lay his or her hand on the head of the lamb and then the lamb would die. And the sinner would walk away feeling forgiven, free. But they must have wondered, why why should an innocent lamb die in my place? I'm the guilty one. I've sinned and yet this has died and I can be forgiven. Could a lamb really take away sin? And of course the answer is no, it never could. And yet for thousands of years, this process of of sacrifice was was, was the, the means to to find forgiveness. But do you know, every lamb, every animal sacrificed was portraying, was picturing the fact that eventually, in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus Christ would come and be the lamb. Do you remember John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, preaching, big crowd round about him, all listening, and then John, as it were, spots on the edge of the crowd, the Lord Jesus, and he stops the flow of the sermon and he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, the same thing happened the next day. So powerful was this message that some of John the Baptist's disciples left him to follow the Lord Jesus. He's the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who's going to take away not just individual sin now, but the sin of the world. And then you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Could I ask, when did you last sit down and just read through a Gospel in one go? Let the Lord Jesus, as it were, walk off the pages of the Bible and reintroduce himself to you. You read them through and and when the disciples, the followers of the Lord Jesus, began to understand who he is, then he began to teach them what he was going to do. They saw him as as God incarnate, God clothed in humanity. And then Jesus said, but the Son of Man must suffer, be taken by the religious leaders and be crucified and be buried and three days later rise from the dead. And Jesus, do you know, throughout his whole ministry, those three years of preaching and teaching and the impact that he had, he he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He knew exactly what it meant to go from the north down to the south to the city where he would be taken and crucified. Do you know, there's a detailed description in the hours leading up 
to the moment when Christ was crucified. Remember I mentioned in, in biographies normally just a page or two about how the person we've read about dies? It's not like that with, with Jesus. In fact, half of John's gospel is taken up with the week leading up to the death of the Lord Jesus. And you say, why is that? Isn't that disproportionate? No, because the greatest work that Jesus did, the greatest work that's ever been accomplished, is his death. Again, we don't normally talk about accomplishment and death going together. But Jesus did. And, and, and the scripture did. Talks about when Jesus was, was on the Mount of Transfiguration and something of his glory seen. They, they spoke about the death that he would accomplish, something he would achieve. Because when he went to that cross, he was going to take on himself the sin of the world. We have a description of how he met with the disciples, how he washed their feet, how he spoke to them, how he took bread and wine. And he said, now when you do this, you, you take the bread and you eat it, you're remembering the fact that my body broken for you. And when you take the wine, you're remembering the fact that my blood was shed for you. We read about the betrayal, how he was sold for 30 pieces of silver by Judas. He didn't even have 30 days in which to spend it, but he was sold for the price of a slave, betrayed by a kiss. How Jesus arrested and taken and went from one place to another where he was tried by religious and political leaders and and Pilate, recognising this, this was a trumped-up charge against him. Pilate tried to wash his hands and say, oh, I have nothing to do with this man. And how, how they set free Barabbas, who should have been executed, but Jesus dies in his place. Barabbas, what an unusual name he's got. Bar means son of, Abbas means father. He's, he's the son of his father. Well, every man in this church is a son of his father. Every boy born is a son of his father. And Jesus is dying indeed in the place of those who are sons, daughters of their father. What a picture. And, and then his garments stripped and his back beaten. We sometimes talk about the 39 stripes, but it doesn't say that about Jesus. It was an unlimited beating on a bare back. So Isaiah, again, prophesying about Christ's suffering, says, do you know his back was like a ploughed up field with furrows in it? And then on that beaten back, he's made to carry this rough, rugged Roman cross and eventually collapses under the weight of it. And do you know all the people who'd heard him, those who'd been fed by him, the, the, the blind who'd received their sight, the deaf who'd received their hearing, the, the mute who'd received their, their speech, the lepers who'd been healed, all the people who'd been transformed by the power of Jesus, none of them came to, to help him in that moment of great need. And they, they have to compel Simon and Cyrene, you, you take the cross. And then between two cursing criminals, nails through his hands and feet, and suspended naked, between heaven and earth. He hangs there, covered only with blood and spittle and dust and grime. Apparently such a weak, hopeless sight. And, and a crowd of Romans and, and onlookers all hurling abuse, pouring scorn on Jesus and he's dying. And he's taking on himself sin. The physical suffering of Jesus was immense. 
the emotional suffering of Jesus. Once his followers forsook everything to follow him, now they, they just forsook him and fled and he's there hanging alone. But the spiritual suffering as Jesus, the pure, holy, undefiled, spotless one, takes on himself the vileness, the filth, the rebellion, the disobedience against God from, from all the ages laid on him like a magnet. He attracts everything which is opposite and contrary to himself. And he draws it on himself and he carries this weight. And sometimes when I've argued with those who've said that Jesus is not God, I've said, do you know, if my sin was compressed into three hours, all the times I, I felt a guilty conscience and the accusation of my own wrongdoing, if it was all compressed into three hours and put back on me, I think my mind would explode. I couldn't cope with it psychologically. But here is Jesus, the Holy One, taking not just my sin, but our sin and the sin of the ages, all compressed on him. And as the God-man, he carries every bit of it, every drop of it, until eventually, in triumph, he cries out, it is finished, not I am finished, it is finished. And he'd accomplished the work that he was born to do. He died for our sin. And you know, he, he wasn't killed. He was killed in the sense that those who plotted and schemed to have him crucified... They had a guilty mind and guilty actions. I think the lawyers talk about mens rea and actus rea. Guilty mind, guilty action. So their intention, their motive was to kill him. But the Lord Jesus had said, no man can take my life from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. He said, destroy this body and in three days I will raise it. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the life, takes on himself the sin of the world and then he gave himself over to death. He dismissed his spirit. He prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I would argue he is the only person in all of history who chose to die. He's the only one who chose to be born, but he was the only one who chose to die. You say, oh, Roger, sadly suicide has become a almost an epidemic, surely they have chosen to die. No, they, they may have chosen, sadly, when and where and how they died, but they didn't choose to die. They would have died eventually. But the Lord Jesus Christ need never have died. He's the life, and he gave himself over to death, and he did it out of love, infinite, eternal love for you and me. And I find that overwhelmingly wonderful news that God would love me and come into the world to go to a cross and die for me. And, and I'm the rebel, I'm the sinner, I, I deserve hell and yet he loved me and died for me. And Jesus talking to these two on the road to Emmaus said, look, let me, let me tell you about who I am. The prefigured Christ, the disfigured Christ. But there's one other thing he says about himself. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He is the transfigured Christ. The Jesus who died and was buried rose from the dead. 
That Jesus conquered the grave. I often say, the stone rolled away from the tomb, not so much to let him out, but to let us look in and see he's risen. He defeated death. There were guards, probably Roman guards, around his tomb. There was this huge stone and it was sealed. He had tight wrappings around his body and his head, separately around his head, and and yet none of those could hold this Jesus who gave himself to death, who tasted death, the Bible says, for everyone. Three days later, he rose from the dead. What an amazing thing. This is God at work. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work. You know, wherever God is at work uh, in, in the Bible, the three persons of the Trinity, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity are at work. So, so we read that God the Father created the world. We read that God the Holy Spirit created the world. We read that the Lord Jesus Christ created the world in Colossians chapter 1. When Jesus was born, the Father sends the Son to be the Saviour of the world, but the Holy Spirit works in the virgin womb of Mary so that she conceives to give birth to a child. When Jesus was baptised, he goes down into the water, the Father speaks from heaven, and the Holy Spirit descends as a, as a dove. When Jesus was raised, we read that God the Father raised him, we we read that God, the Holy Spirit raised him. We read that he raised himself, destroyed this body, and in three days I will raise, raise it. What an amazing God. Jesus rose, he appeared. Over seven weeks he appeared to different people, showed himself risen, sometimes at night, sometimes in the day, sometimes to a crowd, sometimes to individuals, sometimes those looking for him, sometimes those who didn't expect him at all. He shows himself risen. He says to, to one who just can't believe, look, I'm not a ghost. Touch me and see. Does a ghost have flesh and bones as you see I have? He was risen and then he ascended. Ought not the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And do you know this same Jesus that the prophets said would come a first time he himself said, as well as the prophets, he would return again. This time, not as a baby in a manger, but as the Lord of all glory. And every eye will see him. Christ coming back to wind up the affairs of this world. Christ coming back to be seen as the Lord of all. Do you know, the Bible says, every knee will bow before him. Every knee. Some with tremendous regret and some with, oh, he's a friend of mine and he's my saviour. And willingly, gladly, as I have done throughout my life, I gladly bow before King Jesus now. Over the last two nights, as you know, I've interviewed a couple of people here and on Wednesday night or Thursday, was it? Wednesday in Grangetown and, um, or Thursday in Grangetown. And um, I often interview people like this and love doing so. I remember interviewing on a couple of occasions a major general in the British Army and, and to see him you'd think yeah you're a major general I wouldn't want to cross you. You know this strong character of a man and um, he told his story of how he became a Christian. Typical army man not much time for the things of God though there would be chapel services and this sort of thing. He's fought in Bosnia, in Iraq, in Northern Ireland in Afghanistan. He's seen all sorts of things and he finds himself with his wife and um, 
he's, he's based in, in Cyprus. When a notice went up on the Nafi notice board just saying that a, an RAF plane was going across to Tel Aviv airport this coming weekend, which happened to be Easter weekend, anybody wanting it, uh, a flight there and back free of charge, just sign up. Well, free of charge, you and I are paying, but we'll leave that. And um, he thought, do you know we've never been to Israel or Jerusalem? Why don't we sign up? So he and his wife signed and they flew that weekend to Tel Aviv. Easter Sunday, they thought, well, <laughs> it is Easter Sunday, let's go to church. So they went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. They found it an incredibly dark experience, not just physically, but spiritually. Yeah, very, very dark experience. But afterwards, just talking, mingling, they got talking to somebody who said, have you been to the garden tomb? And the Major General said, I, I, I've never heard the garden tomb. What is the garden tomb? Well, actually, it's a bit of Britain in Jerusalem. But many people think this could well be the very place where Jesus was buried. And uh, it's very close to a, a, a rock that looks like a skull. And it says that Jesus was crucified at the place of the skull. So it all seems to tie in. And they say, you should go. That afternoon, he and his wife went to the garden tomb. And there are the, the guides there that take you round and show you and then eventually bring you to the tomb itself. The guide was a, a retired army colonel and um, he showed the major general and his wife round and eventually came to the tomb area and, and simply said, look, we don't know for certain whether this is where Jesus was buried, but it could well be. And, uh, but anyway, go and have, have a look, go in the tomb. And the strange thing is, if you do, you'll be struck by the fact there's no one there. So he and his wife went in, and sure enough, there was no one there. I, I think if there had been a body, he would have been very shocked. But anyway, he, he, he went in, and, and suddenly the thought overwhelmed him. I have seen death many, many times, but I've never known anybody by their own power rise from the dead, and he couldn't shake it off. That very night... He asked Jesus Christ to become his Lord and Saviour, convinced that Jesus not only died and was buried, but rose from the dead. A transformed man, his wife sometime later, also came to trust Jesus Christ. The power of the resurrection. This same Jesus, biography written before he was born. What a life he lived. What a death he died. And he did it out of love for us. And buried and then risen and one day returning. And this is the Jesus we worship. This is the Jesus we trust. This is the Jesus we're relying on to deal with all our sin, to forgive the past, to reconcile us to God, to take us through life's journey, one day to take us home to heaven. Nobody here deserves heaven. But because of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this Jesus is the one who says to us today, come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it's not just Rest, you know, that we have at night. This is spiritual rest, eternal rest. It's his presence through the joys and the trials of life. And then home, to be welcomed by 
Jesus. Oh, there are many things I look forward to in heaven. But do you know, I think I could just gaze on the Lord Jesus throughout all eternity and my soul would be satisfied and deeply grateful. Now, do you love him? Have you trusted him? And what would keep you from him? I'm stunned by what people give their lives to and what causes they have. But who, who is there compared with Christ? I would urge you this morning, if you've never yet turned from your own way and called on the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you and save you, I would urge you, ask him. Even if it's with a million and one doubts and questions, just ask him to save you and make you his, and he will. Only twice in the Bible do we find God in a hurry. And the first time, he's in a hurry to save. He runs to meet that prodigal returning. And the second time in the book of Hebrews, in a hurry to succor, to strengthen, to help us. God loving us, this infinite eternal God, coming to make us his home and make us his own when we turn from our sin and trust him.